Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is August 5th. Mark McGuire made home run history today in 1999. This is both tonight's news and the story of the decade in baseball. McGuire hit a pitch from San Diego Padres pitcher Andy Ashby over the center field wall in the third inning for a career home run number 500, a milestone the St. Louis Cardinals first baseman reached in fewer at-bats than anyone else in history. Naturally, McGuire celebrated by immediately working toward number 600. He hit number 501 in the eighth inning off Ashby in a 10-3 loss before 45,106 at Bush Stadium. When you retire and your stats are set, that's when you can just sit back and reflect on it, said McGuire, who admitted that reaching 500 in just 5,487 at-bats was pretty wild. The fans in his baseball-infatuated city missed out on another milestone. The other name on the evening's marquee, Padres right fielder Tony Gwynn, collected just one hit and is one shy of 3,000 for his career. Gwynn flied out to center field twice in an almost unheard of event for the most disciplined line drive hitter in the past 15 years, walked and grounded out. He had a two-run double in the ninth inning. I was just trying to hit the bat on the ball, said Gwynn, summing up not only his double, but his career. There's too many good things that can happen when you put the ball in play. So Gwynn must wait to become the 22nd player to reach 3,000 hits. Tonight, it turns out, was solely McGuire's. Unlike his record-breaking 62nd home run of 1998, which barely cleared the left field wall, McGuire's Six or 500th was the kind of towering shot that only he could hit. It went shooting toward the sky, rising as quickly as the fans from their seats, then narrowly missed the moon before landing in the grass beyond the center field fence. Number 501 went even farther, hitting the scoreboard in left center field. With the first homer, Maguire became the 16th player to hit number 500. He made it there in 314 fewer at-bats than Babe Ruth, more than 1,500 fewer than anybody else. The home runs gave McGuire a major league leading 44 for the season, putting him in prime position to hit 50 for the fourth straight year. Nobody else has hit 50 for even three consecutive years. Since the start of the 1996 season, McGuire has hit 224 home runs, if not for mid-career heel and back injuries, which limited him to 74 games and 18 home runs in two-season stretch, McGuire could have been closing in on 600. McGuire is on pace to hit 65 homers this season with shouting distance of the record 70 he hit a year ago. The Chicago Cubs' Sammy Sosa is close behind with 42. As McGuire rounded the bases on number 500, the crowd erupted into a cheer not heard since number 62 last year, which broke the record held by Roger Maris. In right field, Gwynn stood politely applauded, the generation's finest singles hitter giving its greatest slugger his due. Gwynn stood in the same spot where Sosa stood on that unforgettable night last September. Another under, another star watching McGuire overshadow his own remarkable pursuit. McGuire nearly accomplished his career-defining feat in his first plate appearance when he turned an 0-2 pitch into the longest possible out-of-the-park, a warning track shot to the deepest part of center field. Padres center fielder Eric Owens caught it with the back to, his, to the wall 
400 feet from home plate, and the crowd let out a disbelieving sigh. Two innings later, McGuire could send a ball in precisely the same direction, just farther. Having witnessed more than its share of memorable baseball since McGuire came to town two years ago, St. Louis got greedy tonight. Never before have two players achieved such milestones in the same game. Only three times have players even reached 3,000 and 500 in the same season. All of St. Louis, it seemed, was pulling for Gwyn, including the city's most famous resident. How neat would it have been if we got to see him do 3,000 tonight, McGuire had asked. St. Louis only got half of what it bargained for, but for baseball fans, there's more to come. Wade Boggs, Gwen's mirror image at the plate for much of the past 15 years, is closing in on 3,000 himself. He needs three more. And Orioles' Cal Ripken needs 32. Even those not in the park saw history. Hank Aaron saw number 500 on the video scoreboard at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. And baseball's career homer leader only thinks he has one day he might catch watch Big Mac break his own record. The way he's hitting home runs, he could break the record next year, Aaron said, who hit 755. He's hitting them in bunches. 70 home runs, he might hit 80 some year. Whew, that's a bunch of home runs, he said. Aaron threw out the first pitch before the Atlanta-Pittsburgh game. He was honored for breaking Ruth's career mark 25 years earlier. Even more than usual, the crowd at Bush Stadium cheered McGuire at every opportunity. When he stepped to the plate, when he stepped on the on-deck circle, when he stepped to the cage for batting practice, flashbulbs went off like strobe lights on every pitch to McGuire. That will continue if McGuire approaches 70 again, something he said won't happen. I still feel that way, McGuire said. Hitting 70 home runs is not normal. And then on August 5th, 1963, after more than eight years of difficult negotiations, the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union signed a limited nuclear test ban treaty. The destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by atomic bombs marked the end of World War II and the beginning of the nuclear age. As tensions between East and West settled into a Cold War, scientists in the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union conducted tests and developed more powerful nuclear weapons. In 1959, radioactive deposits were found in wheat and milk in the northern United States. As scientists and the public gradually became aware of the dangers of radioactive fallout, they began to raise their voices against nuclear testing. Leaders and diplomats of several countries sought to address the issue. In May of 1955, the United Nations Disarmament Commission brought together the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, France, and the Soviet Union to begin negotiations on ending nuclear weapons testing. Conflicts soon arose over inspections to verify underground testing. The Soviet Union feared that on-site inspections could lead to spying that might expose Soviets' vastly exaggerated claims of the number of deliverable nuclear weapons. As negotiators struggled over the differences, the Soviet Union and the United States suspended nuclear tests, a moratorium that lasted from November 1958 to September of 1961. John F. Kennedy had supported a ban on nuclear weapon testing since 1956. He believed a ban would prevent other countries from obtaining nuclear weapons and took a strong stand on the issue in the 1960 presidential campaign. Once elected, President Kennedy pledged not to resume testing in the air and promised to pursue all diplomatic efforts for a test ban treaty before resuming underground testing. He envisioned the test ban as a first step to nuclear disarmament. President Kennedy met with Soviet Premier Khrushchev in Vienna in June of 1961, just five weeks after the humiliating defeat of the U.S.-sponsored invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. Khrushchev 
took a hard line at the summit. He announced his intention to cut off Western access to Berlin and threaten war if the United States or its allies tried to stop him. Many U.S. diplomats felt that Kennedy had not stood up to the Soviet premier at the summit and left Khrushchev with the impression that he was a weak leader. President Kennedy's political... Kennedy's political and military advisors feared that the Soviet Union had continued secret underground testing and made gains in nuclear technology. They pressured Kennedy to resume testing, and according to a Gallup poll in July of 1961, the public approved of testing by a margin of 2 to 1. In August 1961, the Soviet Union announced its intention to resume atmospheric testing, and over the next three months, it conducted 31 nuclear tests. It exploded the largest nuclear bomb in history, 58 megatons, 4,000 times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Discouraged by and dismayed by Soviet tests, President Kennedy pursued dis- diplomatic efforts before allowing renewed testing by the United States. In his address to the United Nations on September 25, 1961, he challenged the Soviet Union not to an arms race, but to a peace race. President Kennedy was unsuccessful in his efforts to reach a diplomatic agreement and reluctantly announced that the resumption of atmospheric testing America testing resumed on April 25th of 1962. After the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev realized that they had come dangerously close to nuclear war. Both leaders sought to reduce tensions between the two nations. As Khrushchev described it, the two most powerful nations had been squared off against each other, each other with its finger on the button. JFK shared this concern, once remarking at the White House meeting, It is insane that two men sitting on opposite sides of the world should be able to decide to bring an end to civilization. In a series of private letters, Khrushchev and Kennedy reopened a dialogue on banning nuclear testing. In his commencement address at American University on June 10, 1963, Kennedy announced the new round of high-level arms negotiations with the Russians. He boldly called for an end to the Cold War. If we cannot end our differences, he said, at least we can help make the world a safer place for diversity. The Soviet government broadcast a translation of the entire speech and allowed it to be reprinted in the controlled Soviet press. President Kennedy selected Avril Harriman, an experienced diplomat known and respected by Khrushchev, to resume negotiations in Moscow. An agreement to the limit of the scope of the test ban paved the way for the treaty. By excluding underground tests from the pact, negotiators eliminated the need for on-site inspections that worried the Kremlin. On July 25, 1963, after only 12 days of negotiations, the two nations agreed to a ban testing in the atmosphere, in space, and underwater. The next day, in a television address announcing the agreement, Kennedy claimed that a limited test ban is safer by far for the United States than an unlimited nuclear arms race. The Limited Nuclear Test Ban Treaty was signed in Moscow on August 5, 1963 by U.S. Secretary Dean Rusk, Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gorkimo, and British Foreign Secretary Lord Holm, one day short of the 18th anniversary of the dropping of an atomic bomb in Hiroshima. Over the next two months, President Kennedy convinced a fearful public and a divided Senate to support the treaty. The Senate approved the treaty on September 23 by an 80-19 to margin, Kennedy signed the ratified treaty on October 7, 1963. The treaty prohibited nuclear weapon tests or other nuclear explosions underwater in the atmosphere or in outer space. It allowed underground nuclear tests as long as no radioactive debris falls outside the boundaries of the nation conducting the test. It pledged signatories to work towards complete disarmament, an end to the armaments race, and an end to the contamination of the environment or radioactive substances. 
33 years later, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty signed by 71 nations, including those possessing nuclear weapons. The treaty prohibited all nuclear test explosions, including those conducted underground. Though it was signed by President Bill Clinton, the Senate rejected the treaty by a vote of 51 to 48. And finally, in 1975, Dutch elm disease was so far attacked more than 3 million trees in Britain and is spreading, according to Forestry Commission officials. Tests on a tree in Wakefield have confirmed the blight is now present in Yorkshire in the north of England. Previously, it had been confined to the south of the county. Country. 300,000 trees in Wiltshire and more than three-quarters of the elms in Gloucestershire have been affected. In West Sussex, the situation is even more acute with more than 90% of the country's elms already felled or infested. The outbreak has been traced to a Canadian timber which arrived in Britain seven years ago. It causes branches and leaves to shrivel suddenly and can kill a century-old elm within a few months. The fungus being spread in the elm bark beetle, which flourishes in hot, dry weather. The recent heat wave has been an aggravating factor in speeding up the infection rate, according to Forestry Commission spokesman David Rook. In this weather, the beetles which carry the virus fly more and breed more. The drought has not helped trees which were sickly, which might have recovered in a summer under normal rainfall, Mr. Rook said. Nearly 2 million elms are expected to die this year. The Forestry Commission has said that disposing of infected trees could cost up to 50 million pounds over the next five years. Scientists have never established where Dutch elm disease originated, but it was formally identified some 80 years ago in Holland. Before the British outbreak, it had been long scourged in both North America and across much of Europe. The 1968 imported Canadian timber carried a new virulent strain of the Dutch elm disease sparked the British ep epidemic. The most effective way of treating the disease was a chemical treatment which had around 80% success rate, but the government considered the procedure too expensive except for trees which had great environmental importance. More than a third of the southern England's 23 million elms perished in this outbreak. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com Mark McGuire's 500th home run at WashingtonPost.com The 1963 Nuclear Test Ban Treaty at JFKLibrary.org and 1975 Dutch Elm Disease in England at news.bbc.co.uk the music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.